Hello, I'm Sarah Kapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, how Ireland's mountain rescue services are being pushed to the limit by inexperienced hikers. So Jerry, can you talk me through what happens when an emergency call comes into you? How does the rescue operation kick off? Okay, so when the call comes through, I could be sitting at home or I could be in work. I'll generally get a text message. I have, like a lot of other team members, we have a special tone on our phone. So I get the text message. You don't have a panic, but you, you sort of... The pulse becomes a little bit raised and that, and you know you have a call out wondering what it's going to be, whether it's going to be a long one, an easy one, whether it's going to be a lower leg, whether it's going to be a carry-out, whether it's going to be a heart attack. So a lot of these things are going through your head. You generally have all our equipment. Like in my car, I'd have my rucksack, my crag gear, the technical rescue stuff, enough kit there so I'll be able to, no matter what the call out is, I will actually be able to respond and have the equipment to do so. Jerry Condon is a volunteer with Dublin and Wicklow Mountain Rescue. Hello, Mountain Rescue! Hello! Over the last 18 months, Jerry and his crew have seen a huge rise in the number of rescue callouts. It's busy on the country's mountains as more people are holidaying at home and enjoying the outdoors, but some take to the hills without being properly prepared. Light over here, Mark, see it? See it? So what is pushing more and more people to explore the hikes and trails around Ireland? And what impact is this having on rescue services? Harry McGee is political correspondent with the Irish Times, but also an experienced and seasoned hillwalker and runner. Harry, firstly, could you tell me a bit about your own relationship with mountaineering? When did you first start walking in the mountains and why has it become such a big part of your life? I've been hillwalking and mountaineering since my teenage years and have been continuing that more or less uh, since then with some kind of time off to do other activities but I would consider myself to be a very experienced mountaineer at this stage. I've done rock climbing, I've done big alpine climbing, and I have climbed most of the mountains in Ireland. And some I've done numerous times. I'd say Corantool. I must have done Corantool between 70 and 100 times over the years. So I'd be very familiar with the mountains, the popular ones, and also the obscure ones. So you're clearly very familiar with Irish mountaineering. Have you noticed the numbers of hikers starting to increase even before the pandemic? So in the past decade or so? If you look at my parents' generation, they didn't really know the the value of rest. And there was a long tradition of hiking, for example, in the UK and Scotland, but it was never the same over here. It was always a very minority pursuit. Uh, Con Moriarty, who's a legendary Kerry mountaineer and guide, I was talking to him for this article and he was telling me that he ran a bus from Killarney every week uh, to climb Corhantool back in the 1980s and 1990s. And sometimes he would only have one or two passengers. So it was very much a minority pursuit back then. When I started, it was a little bit more popular, but you'd always find maybe, you know, on any given day on any of the big mountains, even the popular ones, you wouldn't find a huge amount of people. You'd find a couple of dozen maybe on a nice summer's day. There always have been exceptions. I mean, Crow Patrick in Mayo is exceptional because that is a mountain that has very strong historical and symbolic significance. So that's always been very popular. It's also very easily accessible. It's a fairly tough climb when you do it. 
And it's a very rough path and a very steep cone to the summit. But it doesn't mean tramping four or five kilometres across bog. So ergo, it's always been popular. And Week Sunday in July every year has always attracted thousands and thousands of pilgrims who want to climb. This is the start of a gruelling pilgrimage. Every year, pilgrims by the thousand come to this merciless place in the west of Ireland to walk in the saints' footsteps. To walk, to stumble, to clutch and crawl part of the time. So I think we've seen a gradual and incremental increase in people who have been taking to the mountains and to the outdoors over the past decade or two. And I think that's really a symptom of a more urbanised and more prosperous society uh, where people who have sedentary jobs are looking for something that's quite different to do in their downtime. And hill walking and mountaineering have always, you know, in Dublin have always been relatively popular, but have become hugely popular, uh, particularly in the past 10 years. And then just to kind of fast forward a bit, I think in the last year or two, we've seen what almost amounts to an explosion in popularity, a huge increase in the amount of people who have been going to the most popular spots such as Corantul, Crowpatrick and other mountains. Do you think this huge recent explosion is mainly down to people feeling cooped up and needing some air or are there other factors like perhaps social media where people see photos of places they may have never thought about before and think that's beautiful, I want to see that place? I think that is definitely a dimension, Sarah, and it's something that has become a talking issue over the past couple of months. Uh, It's this notion of an Instagram moment or an Instagram story. And it's been popularised in in Norway, for example, uh, where there is this uh, high point. It's kind of like an overhanging rock uh, overlooking one of Norway's most famous fjords. And it's almost become like a pilgrimage point for Instagrammers. They can't exist without walking up to this uh, rock and getting their picture and putting it into an Instagram story. And you've seen something similar here where people uh, have taken Instagram pictures of themselves uh, near the summit cross on Carhantul. And that, of course, has influenced uh, their peers and others uh, have decided that uh, their life will not be worth living. Uh, until they get that picture up on Instagram of them standing beside the the cross. So there has been that phenomenon. And for example, in Snowdon, which is Wales' highest mountain this year, there have actually been queues of people waiting to start the walk uh, to the summit. So we will see the same queues beginning to develop, perhaps in Irish mountains, as we've seen in mountains elsewhere. Is there anything that you can do about that? Not really. I mean, I don't have any more right to climb Carantool than anybody else and everybody has a right to do so. You can't limit the numbers. So what you have to do is look at ways in which you can mitigate the risks that are associated with it. And there are risks associated with each and every mountain. And when it comes to mitigating those risks, how might that be done? Would it be through better signposting or perhaps clear paths to the summits of mountains? This has been a huge debating point in Irish mountaineering for for a long time. It's the notion of a sacrificial track. And uh, it happened in Ben Nevis, where after years of debate, they decided they'd put in a path to the top that didn't require any navigation skills. A person can actually leave Fort William and actually walk to the top of Ben Nevis without having to, to leave the path. And that, of course, obviates the need for a map and compass or a GPS system and kind of navigational aid. I mean, it's not a walk in the park. There are still kind of objective dangers that are associated with it. But an actual path going all the way to the summit makes it a much more easier prospect for those with no real 
real experience. And I think that was installed, you know, to recognise the reality that the mountains were becoming very popular and not everybody who was going up was a, a full card-carrying member of the hardened mountaineer fraternity or sorority. <laughs> and they needed to do something to begin to mitigate the risk. Now, it has generated a lot of debate because people think that the mountains are part of our unspoilt uh, wilderness type landscape and the more interference that humans do with the mountains the more they're compromised uh, but the reality is that untreated or treated or developed or undeveloped you're going to get more and more people going to the mountains and they will create their own paths and their own uh, erosion uh, irrespective uh, of whether paths proper paths are put put it or not. And speaking of Karen Tuchel, you had a piece in this weekend's paper about a rescue that you personally witnessed on Ireland's highest mountain. Can you tell us what happened? I went down last week with my daughter to bring her up for the first time. And number one, I was surprised by the amount of people who were up there. I had never seen so many people up there before. It was a relatively nice day, but there was low cloud cover. So as we, we went on a route that wasn't a particularly popular route, so we were by ourselves. But when we got to the summit and started coming down, there were lots and lots of people. And one unfortunate person who was relatively well equipped and well prepared, and it could happen to anybody, had a slip and stumbled and hurt themselves and wasn't really in a position to move. And it was near the, the summit. So um, as we came down, we could see Kerry Mountain Rescue get into operation they began to assemble the gear and make their way up to the casualty who was relatively high on the mountain within a couple of hundred metres of the summit. And because the clouds were so low that day, there wasn't a prospect of a helicopter coming in uh, to do uh, an airlift. So there was nothing for it, but they had to essentially trudge up the mountain. And 20 of them, I think, or, or so of 35, responded to the call that day and went up the mountain in their distinctive kind of red apparel and, and helmets. And some of them carrying very heavy loads uh, because you need a lot of equipment to go up. You need first aid equipment. So they brought the casualty down uh, by abseil, essentially. You lower it down on rope down the Devil's Ladder with four members of the team abseiling beside it. It's a very impressive operation uh, to see. It's almost like seeing four spiders from a distance, red spiders descending down this very steep gully. And once they got to the floor of the valley, uh, they, they brought the person into the middle of the valley. And it was that stage that the helicopter was able to come in and bring that person to a uh, hospital. And with the increase in these kinds of incidents happening, what kind of pressure is this putting on the search and rescue teams? I know a couple of the guys who were involved with Kerry Mountain Rescue and spoke to them on the way down. They were telling me that they've had a huge amount of call-outs this summer. And I think they had 19 call-outs during the first uh, 19 days of August and 51 in total this year, which is more than they had for the whole of last year. So the point is that all of these guys are voluntary. You know, so every time there's a call-out, they have to come all the way from right across Kerry. They don't all live beside the mountain. Uh, arrive, leave their work, leave their families and then arrive here. And I mean, they they never spend less than, than four or five hours on the mountain. Sometimes they're 12 or 13 hours on the mountain involved in operations. And this was happening every single day during the month of August. And it was becoming a little bit unsustainable. 
And there was another incident in August worth mentioning, where six Irish people were airlifted to safety when they became stranded on Sweden's highest mountain in extremely cold temperatures. The group had climbed to the summit of Kebna Kaiser Mountain, which is about twice the height of Carinthul. They were stranded overnight when weather conditions deteriorated and temperatures plummeted to minus 10 degrees. And the rescuers involved in recovering the group said that some were only wearing shorts and t-shirts. Are we Irish just bad at preparing for hiking? Is it part of that psyche of, Asher, you'll be grand? Well, I mean, I grew up in Galway and the funny thing about Galway is that it rained every single day and the rain came straight at you in from Galway Bay and <laughs> nobody ever wore coats, you know, and then they'd be surprised <laughs> when they would get caught in the rain. You know, it was showers, so there was never a kind of prolonged monsoon-like rain, but people pe- people were inadequately prepared for rain in, in, in a city. And unfortunately, people, Irish people tend sometimes to be inadequately prepared uh, for what would happen in a mountain. And sometimes people set off on a beautiful summer's day, but don't actually read the weather forecast or listen to the weather forecast in, in detail. And then sometime in the afternoon, what happens is the clouds will begin to rumble in and then you're going to have rain or you're going to have fog. And often, and it's happened to me often, that you would encounter four seasons in one day while going out for a walk or for a climb. So the example that you've given of the six Irish people who climbed Sweden's highest mountain is very germane because I'm sure that they didn't set out to have an accident. And I'm sure that when they set off in shorts and T-shirt that it was going to be a beautiful day. But they either underestimated the weather or else the time it would take them uh, to get to the summit of the mountain. And that's the other thing that people often underestimate, how big the mountains are. For example, if you're doing Koran Tuhul and you've never done it before, you should really allow yourself seven or eight hours. Now, you should safely do it well within that time. But if there is one member of the party who finds it difficult or is slow or somebody, you know, twists an ankle or just finds the, the going hard, you know, you could be doing it for that amount of time. So it's not a good idea, for example, if it takes that amount of time to set off at maybe 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, because before you know it, uh, you're going to find yourself high up on a mountain uh, with darkness descending at an alarming rate. Coming up the rescuers who are saving people's lives in their spare time. Jerry, why did you first start volunteering with Mountain Rescue and how long have you been doing it for? Well, I've been involved in volunteer rescue sector for almost 36 years. Around 17 years ago, while I was in Powers Court Waterfall with the family, there was an accident involving three people. They were climbing the waterfall and... The first person fell and then progressively knocked off another two people. So I was literally first on scene and started treating them as best I could until the emergency service arrived. When the ambulance did arrive, along with it came mountain rescue vehicles, personnel, a whole entourage of people, and they quickly secured the landing zone for the Coast Guard helicopter to land. So that, that was probably the day I decided that I wanted to become a, a member of Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue Team. It was about probably six months after that then when I applied because I was obviously involved in other agencies. So I sort of, some people are in a few different agencies, but when you're committed to something like Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue Team, you really only have time for that and that alone, you know. What has your work been like during the pandemic? Have the rescue call outs gone up much in the past year? With the lockdown coming in, we actually had a record of 120 call outs, which was our busiest year ever. We didn't think there was going to be that many people out. But it was the actual total opposite. 
everybody was hitting the hills because the pubs were closed, the shops were closed. Even with the restrictions, it didn't seem to deter people from going out. Like there was people heading up the mountains that probably had never been up there before. And that's what an awful lot of the call outs were, unfortunately. And what kind of numbers have you seen so far this year in 2021? So far, we're up to 78 call-outs, so we're actually on track to actually go over 120. To keep the same trend, keeps continuing, we'll probably be, um, hopefully not, but it could double, like, you know. And we've heard that a lot of people with no experience of hiking are venturing up these mountains because they also want to get beautiful photographs or the perfect social media shot. Can you give me an example of the kind of spots in Wicklow and Dublin that some of these people might head towards without having any knowledge of the dangers involved around walking in those areas or hiking? Close to suburbs, you have the likes of Lord Massey's um, Hellfire Club, which we've had a good few call-outs in that. We've had one or two around the area, the Bourne Abrina Waterworks, which is literally a stone's throw there from Talla. Going a little bit further afield, then you have Ticknock, Trebraden. There wouldn't be big hills, but there'd be enough that when people get into difficulty that they would require the mountain rescue from coming out. A little bit further, then you'd have Jouse, Lugnaquilla as well as another one, but it's, it's not directly the photographs that are causing the call-outs, but it's more the way people are venturing out to take them. Like, unfortunately, you head off ill-equipped and totally the wrong footwear, um, so that's what's the major contributing factor towards these call-outs. And you and your team that have been heading out a lot more recently, this is volunteer work. You all have your own jobs. So why do you and your co-volunteers do it? And are other rescuers in other countries paid for this work? Yeah, well, in, in the island of Ireland, it's, it's free. Same in the UK. Some European countries do charge for it. Why is it not charged in Ireland? Well, I suppose for us, mountain rescue for us, like our ethos was, it's mountaineers helping other mountaineers and we've always sort of and still do work to that. We do it because we actually love it. Like initially, I suppose, when I, when I got into this sort of volunteering 30 odd years ago, it was a hobby and that's what it was for a lot of us. Um, but as the years have progressed, it's now a way of life for me. Um, payment wouldn't even <laughs> ever cross my mind, to be honest with you. Um, now, people are very good as well. A lot of people that we do rescue would um, later on make a donation because they were really thankful that we've actually either helped them out on the day or in some cases maybe even saved their life. And they do like make contributions to the team. Will there ever be a charge on it? I don't know. We've never actually looked for payment. Like we do for ourselves, we do do our own fundraising because even to be part of a mountain rescue team, it can be quite expensive, um, getting your own personal equipment and that, you know. Can you tell me a bit about the impact that this kind of work has on your personal life? Like you've already discussed the fact that you suddenly you have to drop everything, you have to leave your family and that you could spend between six and 12 hours on a mountain. How does that affect you? I suppose that depending, like sometimes you sort of go through phases with call outs and uh, some days you'll be there and you'll be on a sort of a high and you'll be every time a call out comes in and you'll you'll keep going and you'll you'll you get the adrenaline going in you and it's it's it feels good. It's it's satisfaction when you come back down um you're after reuniting a family member with a lost family member or you've somebody that was really in serious pain, you helped ease their pain, you get them back down. So it feels good. The problem is sometimes you can actually keep going at it and going at it and going at it and you can burn out. Uh, sometimes you forget about your family. 
because you're out there all the time, even though you're with, as we say, our other family, which is the Mountain Rescue Community. And it's, it's sort of getting that happy medium between attending call-outs, attending training, family time. So you need to sort of get a nice, even balance out. It doesn't always work, of course. And sometimes when you head out on these rescue missions, there are fatalities. Uh, how, how difficult is that on you and your team when you arrive at a situation where you just can't save someone? Unfortunately, it, it does happen. Firstly, I suppose it, it's nice to find a person if we have a despondent or something like that. So it's closure for the family. When we do have a find like that, we try and limit exposure to the team members. So like, we don't need, like if there was a, a big search out for someone, and it could be up to like 60 people out searching for a missing person. There is a find. We don't actually, the whole 60 people do not need to go in and see it. So we actually limit the exposure to the team members of the person um, that may be deceased. So there'll be only literally like maybe two or three, up to six persons involved in taking the person away. And we do have a very good, we have what's known as SISM. Um, critical incident stress managers on the team so we can have one-to-one it's followed up within a couple of hours like how are you doing if you need to talk or anything like that and we we have backup and we look after the welfare of team members very well. You mentioned that when you get involved in this kind of work it's it's a passion for mountaineers saving mountaineers do you ever get frustrated when all your resources are being used to rescue someone who really could have avoided that situation if they'd worn better clothing or shoes or looked at the weather or any of those elements. It can be a bit frustrating, like especially when the team, like we work along our sister team, Denver Mal, and last year, there, the year before, we had, I think it was four or five call-outs going on all at the same time. And they were in sort of our operational area. They were like, in some cases, like 40 kilometres apart. So we're sending team members to each incident. Helicopter resources and all and them sort of assets were being pushed as well because we were actually using them for the more serious ones. Like, we do encourage people to go out and enjoy the hills, but we, we do sort of like to say, like, if you're going out, make sure you bring the proper equipment. Depending on what you plan to do or how long you're going out, always try and plan your route, know the capabilities, more importantly, I suppose, let a family member or friend know where you plan to go and the route that you'll take. Another good thing, like if you are going to go out, check the weather the night before. Even again, the morning you set off, dress accordingly. And even if you know Ireland, four seasons in one day, make sure your phone's fully charged. Bring a small first aid kit, you know, and, and stuff like that. Like from a mountain rescue perspective, a lot of our call-outs are lower limb injuries and some, t- some of them anyway, the correct footwear may have actually prevented the injury and prevented the call-out in the first place. And I mean, but at the end of the day, hiking is a very positive activity for the vast majority of people who do it. So as someone who, as you've said yourself, is passionate about mountains, this is generally a good thing, isn't it? That many more people want to get out and about and explore what we have on our doorstep. Yeah, no, definitely. I say we, we encourage it. It's just a little bit of a etiquette, like from ourselves. Like one of the problems we had during the pandemic, so many people were going out to the hills. And I suppose it's, I'm not going to say it's a Dublin thing, it's an Irish thing. You see a sign, but you don't read it. So a, a lot of these car parks and all, like don't park here or don't park there. And there's gateways. And you probably think that ah, they're never used. Like all the gateways that lead up onto the mountains they're there for emergency services and people, I suppose, don't think about it. And so when we arrive up, you can't actually 
get in. So you have to sort of reroute the team round side to another RV. Um, so it's just a little bit of etiquette when you are going out in the hills. Don't block the entrances because they're actually there for access for us to maybe even save you, you know. That's all for today. You can read Harry McGee's news feature on Ireland's Mountain Rescue Services on irishtimes.com. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.